Hey, Dialogue listeners, this is Blair Hodges, former host of the Maxwell Institute podcast at BYU and creator of Fireside with Blair Hodges. Today, I'm excited to let you know about my new show, Family Proclamations. I want to give you a little insider info about how I got the idea for it, because Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, planted a seed. Back in 2012, Dialogue published an interview with Greg Prince with Chieko Okazaki, a former member of the Church's Relief Society presidency. And the interview included this unbelievable insight. I'll quote directly from the article here. This is Chieko Okazaki. She said, When the family, a proclamation to the world, was written, the Relief Society presidency was asked to come to a meeting. We did, and they read this proclamation. It was all finished. The only question was whether they should present it at the priesthood meeting or at the Relief Society meeting. It didn't matter to me where it was presented. What I wanted to know was, how come we weren't consulted? And then Greg Prince asks, you didn't even know it was in the works? And Chieko says, no, they just asked us which meeting to present it in, and we said, whatever President Hinckley decides is fine with us. He decided to do it at the Relief Society meeting. The apostle, who was our liaison, said, isn't it wonderful that he made the choice to present it at the Relief Society meeting? Well, that was fine, but as I read it, I thought that we could have made a few changes in it. Sometimes I think they get so busy that they forget we are there. I read this interview with Chieko Okazaki while I was finishing up my master's degree, and it really got me thinking hard about all the perspectives that weren't represented in the proclamation. We don't read about divorced saints, single saints, or queer, or even church members who can't or don't want to have children themselves. What would their proclamations look like? And that same dialogue article pops up seven years later in a really great book called Sister Saints, Mormon Women Since the End of Polygamy by historian Colleen McDaniel. And McDaniel gives more behind-the-scenes details about how the family proclamation was created. The Relief Society presidency at the time was Elaine Jack, Chieko Okazaki, and Aileen Clyde. And they were just wrapping up an intensive international study of Latter-day Saint women. They had asked focus groups around the world this question— what has been your experience with the Relief Society, and if you had power or responsibility, what would you do to change the organization? As McDonald explains in the book, the presidency was really surprised by the answers because most of them didn't talk directly about Relief Society, but about how there was a huge gap between the reality of their lives compared to the ideal that was presented at church. And so the Relief Society presidency used this research to prepare a special Relief Society session of General Conference for 1995, and it was going to emphasize the diverse variety of faithful families who they said were surviving and thriving. And then two weeks before that session is the moment when Church President Gordon B. Hinckley met with them and told them about the family proclamation. Aileen Clyde recalls President Hinckley saying that they should address the traditional family, and he specifically said not to demonstrate the many kinds of family at this time. So reading McDaniel's chapter about this was another big moment when a seed was planted in my head. What about a podcast that explores the many different kinds of family? The idea of family is central to how Latter-day Saints think about their faith today. And the fact that you're listening to Dialogue's podcast tells me that you know LDS ideas about the right kind of family have changed over time. So family proclamations isn't about Mormonism. It's about the history and evolution of family more broadly, not just for Mormons, but for everybody. And here's the thing. We can't talk about family without also talking about gender identity, gender roles, and sexuality. So family proclamations digs into all of that with incredible guests, with all kinds of backgrounds and interests. I'm talking psychology, history, sociology, anthropology, law, human biology, religion, memoir, and more. 
Again, it's not about Mormon families. It's about all kind of families and gender and sex dynamics. Discussions like this, I think, are crucial to building a more inclusive and equitable future for everybody, but especially for marginalized communities. We'll be looking at single life, the history of divorce, the fascinating origins of birth certificates, postpartum depression, being genderqueer or asexual or transgender. We'll talk about caregiving for elderly parents and healing intergenerational trauma. We'll look at the history of same-sex marriage and the ways that childhood has been invented and morphed over the years. I'm just scratching the surface here. This is just giving you an idea of the kind of things we'll be talking about. But now I'm excited to present the debut episode of Family Proclamations. It's called Meet the Eves, and the guest is Kat Bohannon. Her book, Eve, is an incredible tour through time. It's all about how the female body drove millions of years of human evolution. So we're starting things off with something we can all identify with, the fact that we've all been birthed at some point. So if you enjoy the episode, be sure to subscribe to Family Proclamations wherever you get your podcasts. It's a proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. It is nuts. It's nuts that we make babies the way we do. Our pregnancies and our births and our postpartum recoveries are longer and harder and more prone to dangerous complications. And that's true compared to almost any other primate. When Kat Bohannon was working on her PhD, she noticed something was missing from the stories she usually heard about human evolution. Specifically, women were missing. That seemed like a pretty big oversight, so she tracked down the most cutting-edge research and pulled it together into a fascinating new book. And Kat's here to talk about it. It's called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Evolution. And you know, since we're taking a new look at families, gender, and sex on this show, I thought, what better place to begin than the place where we all began, at birth? Let's look at how that messy, dangerous, incredible process came to be. There's no one right way to be a family, and every kind of family has something we can learn from. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and this is Family Proclamations. Kat Bohannon joins us. We're talking about the book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Kat, welcome to Family Proclamations. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. I'm thrilled about this. This is such a good book. Your introduction to the book suggests that the idea for it was conceived in a movie theater or after you had just seen a movie, a prequel to Alien. And I didn't see that coming. Talk about how the book started. So as a person who is femme presenting, as a person who identifies as a woman, I have many um, triggering moments for where I might want to talk about the body <laughs> and its relation to our lives. However, there was this one kind of crystallizing bit. So I'm a big sci-fi fan, big Kubrick fan, big um, Ridley Scott fan. So I'm going to go. When they come out, I'm going to go. Now, this is a prequel to Alien, so you know going into this film that whatever characters you meet, it's not going to go well for them. You just accept that in that kind of sadistic way as an audience of these things. Like, this is, yeah, you know where it's going. <laughs> but in this case, what happened is the main character has been impregnated, effectively, with a vicious alien squid, as you do. <laughs> and she's sort of shambling in, in a desperate state, and she arrives in this crashed spaceship at a med pod. So it's like, Surgery in a box, you know, that's the idea. And she asked the computer 
for uh, Caesarean. I think she actually says something like Caesarean, <laughs> you know, but she she wants help with her situation, her tentacled situation. And the med pod says, I'm sorry, this med pod is calibrated for male patients only. <laughs> and I hear in the row exactly behind me, a woman say, who does that? <laughs> exactly. Who does that? Who sends a multi-trillion dollar expedition into space, right? Presumably that's maybe it costs more and doesn't make sure that the medical equipment works on women, right? And and it turns out us. Yes. Yeah, it's us. We're the ones who do that um, right now in every single hospital. It's a problem. Right. So your book is looking at the male norm problem, right? You're looking at how, and not just in medical science, but I think in the ways that anthropology has worked, um, a lot of sociological studies, studies of medicine, assume the male body as the norm and then proceed from there. And there are practical reasons for this that you talk about in the book, for example, with with um, medicine trials, for example, that y you want a body that isn't maybe going to experience a lot of hormonal flux over the course of the study or that isn't going to be pregnant or something. And so what ends up happening is women get left out of scientific conversations a lot, not just in medicine, but also in the history of evolution. And your book wants to address that gap. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you can see it even in Stanley Kubrick's 2001, you know, where they're inventing the first tool, right? And they're banging a bone on the ground that they beat the crap out of a guy. You know, the camera tracks it. The bone goes up into the air and turns into a spaceship. This is the classic idea of tool triumphalism, that where we come from is male bodies doing what we stereotypically associate with male body stuff. Yeah. Like beating the crap out of people, right? And there's no females in that scene. <laughs> no. Where are they? Are they like behind a hill having the babies? Like how, this is where evolution works, people. These are the bodies that make the babies, that make the babies, that make the babies, right? right? And it's absolutely true that in the stories we tell ourselves about our bodies and where we come from, that we often erase the idea of femininity. We often erase the presence of females as this kind of insignificant side character. But in biology, particularly in mammals, uh, it's, it's often quite the reverse. Mm. Things that drive mutations in female bodies, biologically female bodies, are often major drivers for the trajectory of that species because the outcome of our reproductive lives uh, is strongly, strongly tied to the health of the bodies of the female. That's right. I love how you framed this because you invite us to think about our bodies as a collection of things that evolved at different times for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And you're looking especially at how uh, female bodies have evolved. And so breasts themselves have a heritage. Milk has a heritage. Ovaries have a heritage. Senses have a heritage. So instead of one singular female that we're looking back to as our origin, like the biblical Eve, for example, you say that there are actually a lot of different Eves. In fact, I think your book could have been called Eves, plural rather than Eve, right? Yes. Because you're looking at the origins of all of these different parts of the body. Absolutely. I mean, when you look in the mirror, what you see, if you're a sighted person, is, um, well, it's a mix, right? It's actually the photons bouncing off of that mirror surface, which have already bounced off the surface of your body and then eventually find their way to your retinas. And that's all the technical feature of how your eyeballs do what they do if you have eyeballs that do that. But it's also inevitably embedded in cultural understandings. Mm -hmm. And it's also embedded in an idea of time that you begin at a certain point. Your body arrives through, well, actually through a very wet passage usually into the world. And so you are you. But actually, the body itself is a continuation of many processes that work very chaotically and intricately together uh, that started a very long time ago. 
And your intestines are effectively way older than even your uh, upright pelvis. Your pelvis is way older than your encephalized brain. So what you're looking at in the mirror is almost like, this might be too lyric, but it's it's almost like a, a point in a stream of light blasting backwards from you and out forwards in front of you. Uh, because what you are isn't so much a thing, but something that is um, happening. Yeah, yeah. And you take us way back in time. You, you know, 200 million years ago is when you take us to the first Eve. This is the the milk mom, the the mammal who kind of brought milk here. You, you describe her, you call her Morgie, and she's sort of this weasel mouse. Tell us a little bit about Morgie. Morgie's fun. We nickname her Morgie because the Smithsonian did that before I did. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> she is an exemplar genus. There are many species of Morganicodon, but uh, they are often nicknamed Morgie in the community of paleo folk. And they are this lovely little kind of weasel rat bitch. She's great. She's only about the size of a field mouse. She is presumed to be burrowing, so she lives in little holes in the ground. The drawing is so cute, by the way, that you have in there. It's so isn't she wonderful? Is so cute. Yes. I hired this amazing illustrator, and as you'll see in the book, and and duly cited, uh, she was very very talented. We worked together. She wanted to have portraits of all the Eve, and yeah. I was like, yeah, let's do portraits of all the Eve. But she, coming from a Catholic background, my mother's Catholic too. You know, she wanted to do them like saint cards, you know, yes, where you have the iconography are. in the center, but then yeah. all in the periphery around the side, you have all of these symbolic things. So you yeah. have a picture of Morgie, which is the real Madonna. Thank you. But she doesn't have nipples. She's sweating drops of milk out of her milk patches on her belly, and she has these weird little pups sipping from it. Anyway, this is a podcast. You can look at it for yourselves when you get the book. But um, <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful portrait. And the reason I picked Morgie as the, the start is what people often forget is that, okay, yeah, we know we're mammals. You might have heard that. Even in high school bio, you're like, okay, homo sapiens, mammals, right? But what's not often talked about is one of the many characteristic traits that make us mammals are deeply tied to how we reproduce, which is Mm -hmm. to say are deeply tied to the female of a sex species. And uh, Morgie is this moment, roughly, when we think, okay, here's where we start lactating. Here's where we start making milk, and that becomes a key part of how we continue the development of our offspring after they exit the womb. And the funny thing about milk, of course, is that we're still laying eggs while we're first making milk, right? So we are egg-laying weird weasels, which is Morgan, uh, in our little burrow under the feet of dinosaurs, but also that we start lactating before we have nipples, right? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Isn't it wild? I also learned this on my journey. In, uh, in the research. So when we look in the mirror, we think, oh, breasts, these things, where do they come from? And we think of them as a sexual trait. We think of them as a thing that is meant to signal attractiveness to our partners. Yeah, why'd they become fatty or whatever, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But we may not even parse that, oh, are we talking about the shape? Are we talking about the fat? Are we talking about the... And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, the origin of lactation is before you even have a nipple, right? Yeah. That you actually are just sweating the, this thing out from modified endocrine glands out of your skin through your through yeah. your hair. And in fact, the duck-billed platypus, which is often modeled as a kind of weird monetary basal mammal, she doesn't have nipples either. Her pups, through their weird little bills, are slurping the milk off the bottom of her belly through these uh, milk patches. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where these things come from. I had no idea. And also that milk wasn't just for nutrition, but also a way to sort of protect or the eggs, right? So Morgie was was laying eggs, and then milk would be produced to help the eggs rather than just feed the babies. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for a lot of egg layers of not hard shell, not like a chicken, but yeah. a softer leathery shell, um, there are many species that make leathery eggs, yeah? Uh, the trick is, is when you're on land, you need to keep them moist. You can't have them dry out while that uh, offspring is continuing to develop in there. So a lot of egg layers, um, it's kind of gross, but they secrete this kind of egg moistening goo that also yeah. has a lot of useful antifungal and antibacterial properties. Because, of course, you also don't want the eggs to be overrun like old bread. You want it to, you want it to both be wet, but not moldy. <laughs> wet, but not infested with parasites, right? Um, sure. And so, yeah, so the best model I've seen for the evolution of milk is actually derived from that original egg moistening goo, which is, of course, incredibly gross to think about, but more likely the origin of lactation. Mm. And you talk about how the mechanics of the nipple themselves. So we do get to a nipple, like evolutionarily. We, we do. We, we do, do develop I these got nipples. Two. Some yeah, people have yeah. more. I do yeah. too. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. mine yeah, would yeah. be a little bit trickier to to get to milk, but you do point out in the book that some some male folks can uh, can lactate uh, given the right exercises and the right stimulation, et cetera. Uh, but with uh, the and nipple- right hormonal cocktail usually, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But with the nipple, it, it wasn't so straightforward. So even today, like babies, it's not this natural- you know, it's it's it can be tough to get babies to latch and to do all this. So it, it's like the odds were still stacked against us, even though we developed a nipple. It's this dance that a breastfeeder and a baby have to do to like figure out how to still transfer that food across. Absolutely. And some species seem to be a little bit better at that, what we often call latching than others. Yeah, my son was terrible at it. Absolutely just mangled my chest wall in ways that alarmed even the nurses. They're like, Ugh. oh, God, here's a pump. It's okay. Eventually, uh, whatever. I didn't have like a moral goal for it. Luckily, I, I was able to not be embedded in that mm, debate that many women do in the way we punish ourselves. Oh, I wasn't able to lactate well enough. Sure. Like, oh, come on. It's fine. I mean, and when you think of it from a biological perspective, when you think about it in that evolutionary frame, in many ways, the mammalian chest wall, our bodies know how to make milk better than babies know how to latch. It's an older trait. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, but there are many really, really cool traits about the latching when it does work, because milk is what's called a co-produced biological product. That means the mother and the offspring are actually making it together, not simply because when you suckle, when an offspring suckles, that means that you arrive at that letdown reflex because we're not carrying a sloshing cup of milk around in our boobs, no matter how big they are. Right. This isn't a right. This isn't a Ziploc bag in there. Right. <laughs> this is actually yeah. like maybe a couple tablespoons at a time if you're lucky. When you're lactating. But no, the suckling actually triggers the milk glands to kick up production. And that's what starts the whole process rolling. But the more important thing there for the latching, because once you have that vacuum-like seal, once the kid's mouth latches on, forms the seal like a weird lamprey and sucks that, you know, <laughs> relatively giant nipple into its mouth. Well, now actually you've created something of a tide, right? Because as the child suckles, it's creating a vacuum while it sucks its cheeks in, right? And that's to suck the mm -hmm. milk down as it's coming. But the tongue's moving back and forth, which moves the focus of the vacuum back and forth, which creates a tide, like a wave on the shore of milk over the top. And under the bottom, the baby's spit is sucked back up into the nipple because <laughs> that's how undertow right. works. It's just physics. Which is gross and invasive to think about as a person who's done it. But it's true that the, the spit is then drawn up into the whole lining of the tubing of the breast where it's red like some weird ancient code. Right. And the mother's immune system is responding. All sorts of different sensors are responding and changing the content of the milk to suit. So if the kid's sick, 
then you get more immunoagents coming down that nipple uh, to help the kid fight off the infection and a bunch of hormonal stuff and ratios of proteins to sugar. We make our milk to suit given what we're effectively anciently reading in the kid's spit. Now that said, breast pumps are awesome. Your kid will be fine if you're not able to do this, okay? You know, modern technology is beautiful, fed is best. But if you are getting the latching, then that's what's actually happening. This is the kind of thing your book is chock full of. Like so many times people are going to run into these things that like, you know, that they may have never heard of that are just unreal. Uh, you also talk about how the breast can be dangerous business too. I mean, uh, evolution has trade-offs. So breast cancer, for example, is so yeah. common with women. Yeah. And so there are these things where like you can benefit the baby, but having the ability to produce this milk and do this thing through the breasts also increases a risk to the breast haver as well. So yeah. there are these trade-offs that you talk about through, throughout the book as well. Absolutely. And I'll also offer that uh, male bodies and men uh, and, and trans women are also all capable of getting breast cancer. Mm -hmm. We all actually have mammary tissue. Just male typical bodies tend to have way less of it, right? And mammary tissue, because it's so dynamically responsive to hormonal signaling, is just one of those places in the body that's more vulnerable to mm -hmm. processes that yeah. can drive cancer. And Cells going haywire. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's still something absolutely that uh, non-binary folk and genderqueer folk of all types should pay attention to. If something's bugging you in your body, talk to your doctor. Yeah, there's so many footnotes that's, <laughs> that have that caveat of like, by the way, talk to your doctor just in case. Well, it's so important. Let's talk about the next Eve. This is Donna, and this Isn't is a it? chapter about the womb. And Donna emerged after a catastrophic cataclysm, whatever killed off the dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, there was this little weasel-type animal that made it through all that destruction. This is 60 million some odd years ago. Yeah. And you point to her as a reason why so many women today have periods. Yep. Let's talk about Donna. Donna, which is, um, I nickname her Donna, of course, uh, Protegulatum Donna. But Donna's easier. Donna's easier. It's, it's cuter to call her Donna. So <laughs> yeah. she is uh, an ancestor of the modern placental womb. Now, we only have one womb. Many mammals still have two because they're evolved, of course, from the shell gland of our former egg layers. Yeah. And the reason we have one, we're not entirely sure why, but we know the mechanism is that you have these two organs that are merging into one and producing that kind of, in our case, kind of pear-shaped thing, but many, many women and girls are still born with a uterus that has a, a little dent in the top. Very common. Some even have a whole fibrous divide down the middle. Some are even still born with two uteri, less common, but happens, and two cervixes and two vaginas to match. Um, so the easiest way to remember the difference between us and marsupials, marsupials pouch, us no pouch. But what that also marsupials, two or more vaginas, which is, you know, fun, and uh, us only the one. But the reason to think about that isn't simply that it's cute and weird and cute and imagining all of the things that you might do with an extra vagina, all of which I'm sure are for the good, but like that it's really talking about at what point in development is that offspring coming out of that maternal body and how much of development is finished outside of the womb in or out of a pouch or a burrow or what have you, right? So this is the moment we start going down the path towards our somewhat catastrophic human reproductive system that is long <laughs> derived from early, early mammals just after that cataclysm, which knocked out almost all the dinosaurs except for a few disgruntled birds, right? Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what's left of them, your house sparrow, 
But what we have now is we have this really patently crazy thing where instead of laying eggs like a sensible creature, we effectively hot dock them into our bodies within a uterus and then transform not simply the uterus, but the entire body into this kind of eggshell slash meat factory of a burrow, right? Because our body is now effectively the burrow for that phase of development. In um, marsupials, comes out like the size of a jelly bean, comes out a lot thinner, finishing out most of that development in the pouch and then elsewhere. For us, we're finishing a lot of the development inside our bodies, which um, has all kinds of knock-on effects. And one of my favorite parts of the book that just blew me away was the illustration, I think it's on page 76, where the female pelvic anatomy, where you, you know what we usually see is the uterus and like it's stretched out and it looks kind of like a hip. It looks like our hips, like the ovaries are stretched out, the tubes are... You show no, it's actually sort of just like bald and smooshed up in there, like all together. Totally. Which I, I mean, I have never seen this illustration before. I've always seen that other illustration where it's like all laid out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a lot of us learn, um, if we're lucky enough to have something like sex ed. Sadly, not all of us do, but for those of us who are <laughs> able to have that be part of our education, it's kind of like a T shape, like a capital letter T, where you have that uterus and the vag in the middle, yeah. and then you have those fallopian tubes extending out to the side with two little grapes, you know, near the fringy bits, right, which are the ovaries, right? But the body doesn't have all this extra room in it. It's not like stretching out its arms. It's all kind of smooshed up in there, <laughs> right? Which yeah. means that I've had the very real and very common experience of having had a transvaginal ultrasound where they're like trying to image my ovaries and they can't find one because for whatever reason, the path of that ultrasound beam is being blocked by a part of the bowel or the uterus itself or just something's in the way and the ovaries hiding. And I was very alarmed at this moment, partially because I had a large thing inside my vagina and was trying to maintain a conversation. Mm, it's, it's rough. Right. But it's also, it's also like this person's telling me they can't find one of my ovaries. I'm like, well, where the hell is it? Like, did I lose an ovary? <laughs> yeah. Like, what? You know, and and no, actually, it's just that everything is very smushed in there, which is part of why ovarian cysts can hurt so much for people who have them, because you have that radiating signal of irritation hitting many different organs in that area, right? Uh -huh. um, and yeah. so it can be kind of hard to pinpoint what you're feeling exactly, and you just know it hurts, or that it's like pressure, right? Yeah. And it's different person to person. It's also, unfortunately, why ovarian cancer is so very dangerous. People who have these biologically female bodies, we kind of get used to aches and pains down there. It's kind of a weird common sensation for fluctuations over a menstrual cycle to have some kind of achy bits, some kind of bloated bits, some kind of what was that sharp pain? I don't know. It went away. Cool, cool, cool. You know, and <laughs> yeah. so in the early stages of ovarian cancer, it's often the case that a patient may not be fully aware that what's happening might be new. Now, that's not to have your readers be terrified if something's bothering you. Again, mm. talk to your doctor. But it is absolutely why it's so dangerous because, of course, given that it's so smooshed against everything in there, it's not hard to metastasize. Yeah. You're like right up against the bowel. You're very close to the liver. You're, you're, you're in the mix. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's packed in there. And you talk about how just bonkers this is. That, and how many people who have gone through pregnancy have said like, what the, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, Fair. why do I have to do this? Fair question. Yeah. Yes. Somewhere in our very deep sci-fi future, if we don't blow ourselves up first, which given the news today seems very close yeah. to happening, thanks. But yeah. assuming we survive the insanity that is human culture and conflict, 
there is a future in which there is a truly external womb, mm. which would have to be effectively an entire synthesized female body, right? Because it's not just, it's also your immune system, it's your respiration, it's many things. Mm -hmm. But assuming in the very deep, many hundreds of years in the future that this happens, it immediately changes everything. Because of course, then it immediately becomes unethical to ever ask a female to do this dangerous thing. She may still choose, mm. but it becomes unethical to ask because there's truly an alternative. Mm. Anyway, so there's a thought experiment yeah. for you in our future sci-fi. But yeah, it is nuts. It's yeah. nuts that we make babies the way we do. Our pregnancies and our births and our postpartum recoveries are longer and harder and more prone to dangerous complications that can and do cripple and or kill mother, child, or both. And that's true compared to any almost any other primate, except for squirrel monkeys, and we feel sorry for them. But that's true <laughs> for almost any other mammal. We suck at this. We're actually bad at reproduction, which seems counterintuitive because there are 8 billion of us. Right. But it's true. And we see you trying to sort of theorize as to why that is. Like, we're so bad at reproduction, but we're also... So highly successful, one might even say invasive species in a way. Right, we spread right. out everywhere. And yep. how did that happen if we're so bad at reproduction and it, it's such a costly and dangerous thing to do? Well, it took all of our very classic hominin resources to pull it off. We had to be super social and super clever problem solvers who are good at thinking about the world as a tool user which is to say tool use is about behavior. Yeah, so it's not like a paleoanthropologist actually gives a damn about this rock that someone used to cut something, right? The stone axes are not the thing they care about. They care about what they can infer about the behavior of its user. All paleoanthropologists are deeply behaviorists. What that means is um, if all tool use is essentially overcoming a limitation of your body in order to achieve a goal in your given environment and using some manipulation of your behavior to do that, well, our most important invention, if we suck at reproduction, was gynecology. Lucy, and I'm not the first to say this, Lucy, the Australopithecine, 3.2 million years ago, had a freaking midwife. Hmm. And Habilis, after her, had even more reproductive workarounds, as did Erectus, all the way up to Homo sapiens. We were manipulating our fertility patterns through behavior. Hmm. And that's a huge upgrade. Now you don't have to wait around for your uterus to evolve to a thing that's less deadly because, of course, you know, you could also just go extinct. There's that. That's an option in, in evolution. Mm -hmm. You could also just not exist, yeah, when you have bad reproduction. But if you can work around it behaviorally, if you can have midwives, we're one of the only species that regularly helps each other give birth. If you can manipulate your fertility patterns to up or down regulate your fertility too, because in any given environment, it might be better to cluster your births earlier in re your reproductive life and then care for your sort of useless babies. I love my kids, but they're useless, right? For a long <laughs> period of time, right? Like in your given environment, given your food supply, maybe that's a good plan. Or maybe things are more seasonal. Or maybe it's actually there's not a lot of food at all and you need to stretch that shit out. Yeah, you need to actually have them every four to six years or so, which is what chimpanzees do, which is what some known human communities too, right? right. So you have to think about how we choose to have babies and what we do to manipulate our fertility, including medicinally, including behaviorally in the space of medical practices, as something that's adapting this buggy, fault-prone thing that is human reproduction to suit our different environments and lifestyles. And that starts not a few hundred years ago, not just in the deep history of you know racism and eugenics, sadly, in modern gynecology, sure. but actually millions of years ago.
Sure, and you're inviting us to think again about tools. So you talked about that scene in 2001 Space Odyssey <laughs> where the tool is this bone that's a weapon, and we think about the rise of humanity as being tied to this type of tool. And you're inviting people to re-envision that and say, actually, the tool of gynecology, which would have involved our own hands as tools, would have been such a crucial turning point for who we are as a species or who we could become because I think I think you even say like we seize the means of reproduction or something at that, at that point, which is a great pun. Yes, yes, and and meant to be because I too am a nerd. Yes, <laughs> yes, we do. We do indeed seize the means of actual freaking reproduction, uh, and and get our hands on the levers that are controlling our uh, not only our reproductive destiny, but then effectively our destiny as a species. Mm. That's Kat Bohannon. She's a researcher and author with a PhD from Columbia University in the evolution of narrative and cognition. And we're talking about her book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. It's a brand new book, and it's a fabulous book. The next part I wanted to talk about was perception. And you say you got thinking about whether men and women perceive the world in different ways. And you got thinking about this as a college student working as a nude model at the local art school. And when students would take a break, you'd kind of wander through and check out how people were seeing you, how they were drawing you. And you noticed invariably often the, the, the men would be drawing your breasts too big. You're like, those aren't mine. Um, but then as the weeks went by, they would get closer to normal size. Like something was changing in how they initially saw you or how they were drawing you. And so you wondered, like, are they seeing things differently than me? Is perception different? Now, the danger in this question is falling into the trap of men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? Um, essentializing yep. gender and doing all of this. So we'll okay. keep that in mind as you talk about perception and, and what you found in this chapter. Yeah. Um, so there were some genderqueer folk in uh, the art classes where I was a professional naked person, which was a <laughs> job at the time. Um, but uh, for the most part, they were they were cis folk and with a variety of sexualities. So I would just point out that in these rooms, uh, there, of course, was diversity and there was racial diversity, too. However, the most obvious variable, you know, if you want to call it that was simply that the uh, male presenting folk who were almost universally cis were drawing my boobs too big. Uh, <laughs> now, they're not small. I'm like a 34D. It's a problem. They kind of, the straps dig into my shoulders. I know that I am not a small-breasted person for good and ill, but it's more that there's just, you know, the skill of literally proportionally yeah. how big are these knockers you're putting on this this figure drawing. And the females were, the the women, the femmes, were not doing that. And it huh. wasn't the case then. And it was happening semester after semester in multiple classes. So this is not a scientific study that I'm basing this on. This is anecdote. But like, it was a thing. And I asked some other people who'd been models and they were like, oh, yeah, they always do that. Huh. And I was asking them, what do you think it is? And they usually said something like, eh, it's just porn. Whatever. They get over it. It's fine. They just don't <laughs> know how to not see porn when they see naked female bodies until, right? Although this was the late 90s and early aughts. So um, it was before the uh, massive proliferation of internet porn, but whatever. <laughs> It was a thing, is what I'm saying. It was a freaking thing that was fairly consistent. And so I had to ask myself, like, do they literally look larger to them? You know? Yeah. Is this a cultural thing? Is this gender mess? Is this just sexism? Is it just, you know, that soup of that thing where it's complicated? Or is there something physiological going on? And so for that, I take us back to the dawn of primates. Not in the men are from Mars, women from Venus way, but actually when were we actually weird little proto-monkeys in a tree? You know, and can that tell us anything about why they're drawing my boobs too big? 
and I and it's a journey. I go through quite a lot because there's a lot that goes into the evolution of the sensory array. The nose, the eyes, the ears, yeah. So there's a lot to work with there and it doesn't always come back to my naked self. <laughs> um, the central reason why, as best as I could tell, they were drawing them too large is that they were literally fixating on them. So when your eye looks out on the world, it's doing a mixture of things. It's doing a mixture of saccades, which are these twitchy little movements your eyes are doing back and forth, back and forth, back and yeah. forth that you don't even notice, and fixations, which means they're landing on one spot and staying there for a period before they move around again. And there does seem to be, in the lab, notable sex differences in how male saccade versus fixation pattern seems to work. Again, mostly these subjects are cis men, so... There's your caveat, right? Yeah. But one of the famous things about male versus female facial perception that classically in the psychological literature, uh, cis women seem to be uh, better at remembering faces. Uh, and these are sighted people, of course, than cis men. And it seems to be, after doing some eye tracking studies with some careful cameras, that what's happening is that male eyes seem to focus more centrally on the center of the face, almost kind of around the tip and bridge of the nose, like that center zone. Whereas female typical eyes are doing fixations through all of the major points of facial features, eyes, nose, huh. cheekbones, chin, up again, all around, all around, all around, which is to say it may be the case that it's not that, you know, the stereotype women are more social, we're just better at remembering people <laughs> because we're all kind of emotionally mushy or some shit, right? No, yeah. it's actually that where you fixate is giving you more signal for your long-term memory. And so if you're getting a broader range of information to dump into long-term memory, yeah. just literally what your eyes are doing may be helping you do that, right? Which is not about yes. a psychology thing. It's a physiology thing. And in the boys' cases, I think they were quite literally fixating more on my breast. Now, why they were doing that may well be cultural. They don't have them yeah, right. for the most part. So here's that, you know, and they're 18 years old, people. I was naked in front of 18-year-old boys, so I have no more nightmares, right? But like they were, you know, so that's new. That's not in our culture. That's not a thing they've seen a lot in a social setting as opposed to an intimate setting, right? You know, so literally it's looming large in their mind and over the course of the semester as they get used to it. Yeah. Right. So it's both what their eyes are doing, but it's also cultural. Right. And this is where, and you point this out as well, sometimes, especially in the footnotes, where like studies on trans folks are going to shed a lot more light on this, where we can probably get a better sense of oh, yeah. of where culture fits in, where expectations fit in versus physiology yep. in this. So, And we're yep. still so early in, in scientific endeavors of like thinking about trans perception that it's, you know, it's just Absolutely huge questions to explore so much more to okay. explore there than we know going to be fun. It's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. This also talks about, so our eyes, our nose, and our ears is in this chapter. The nose, it was really cool to learn about how like our faces flattened out over time, which made oh, smell. No. We're not as great smelling like as we used to be. Our, our faces are flat. We don't have sure. this big like organ in there that, that does a lot of good smell stuff. And a lot of these changes happen when we were up in the trees to our eyes and ears yep. that point to some what what seem to be some sex-based differences. So give us some example of these sex-based differences in in smell, in sight, in sound that still carry through today that are kind of throwbacks to this time when we were swinging from the trees, or I guess really just kind of crawling around in the trees. Uh, yeah, yeah. We didn't have those brachiating shoulders yet. So swinging less. <laughs> right. But no, so this is a kind of classic story of how we got the the so-called monkey face. You know, even a kid can yeah. kind of draw a monkey face on a piece of paper. You know, you got the big ears, 
got that kind of flat face, <laughs> two forward-facing uh, binocular stereoscopic eyes. Like, we know what that looks like, but that's a very big change from something like a weasel or a mouse, right? Where you have that elongated yeah. snout, you have eyes a little bit more to the side, right? And most of the people who talk about the evolution of primates do talk about how this came about, that our, if a face is a sensory array, it's not just what we use to smile at each other. It's where we're hanging our primary sensors of the eyes, the nose, and the ears, and how we right. position them on our head is very much shaping how we perceive our environment. So the move up into the trees is a very different environment from the ground, especially from burrowing. So there are many different ways in which we have to process the world differently. Um, when it comes to the nose, one of the things that's interesting about human beings is we lost what's called the marinasal organ, which is this, um, in a lot of mammals, the perception of pheromones, you know, smells that usually the opposite sex put out that we innately strongly react to which in a mouse is incredibly a dominant part of their perceptive lives. For us, we don't have it. We evolved away from it. We actually still have a teeny tiny little passage. It's like at the bottom of our sinuses, but it ends in kind of a, it hits a wall. It's not, not much going on there. Human mm -hmm. beings don't seem to have a whole lot of pheromone perception left. But what we do have is a whole bunch of cisgender women who are a lot better at smelling stuff than males are. And we're not entirely sure we know why it is, but it is absolutely true classically in olfaction that uh, female subjects are going to be better at detecting uh, scents that are faint, you know, mm -hmm. in a room. Like and that's a concentration thing. You only need a little whiff, you know, whereas a male typical might need a stronger dose. Mm -hmm. We are better at discerning between different kinds of scents and we're better at recognizing it quickly. So we're literally smelling more finely than males are. But it's not because we have more receptors, actually. And in fact, our noses, our, no our nostrils sucking in that air have are smaller than most males, in fact. Yeah. No, the big difference actually seems to be in the olfactory bulb itself. This is the part of the brain that processes smell information. And the cells are more tightly packed with more of them, even controlling for body size in a female typical brain than in a male. And that just means that it is transmitting that signal more quickly and more widely and more effectively, and then sending a stronger signal out to other parts of the brain. So we're literally wired differently. Don't entirely know why, and we're not really sure if that's a tree problem or if it's just like a sex pheromone problem that's a leftover. Not really sure. Not only our smell is discussed in this chapter, but our hearing as well. And you say that probably the most important differences between sexes pertains to hearing here, volume and pitch. Women tend to hear better in higher pitches. They retain hearing better with age. What are the differences that stood out to you in a male typical versus a female typical body when it comes to our hearing? Uh, this was kind of wild for me. So I'd often heard the story, and maybe you have too, that female ears, human female ears, are better tuned to higher pitches that often correspond to baby cries, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's... um. Men and women can hear the same pitches for most of our early lives, but we're more tuned in to the pitches that are associated with the pitches that babies usually use when they cry. To me, this was kind of an annoying story. Once again, I seem to be hardwired to make babies. And as a feminist, I'm like, uh, but it's true. So it's fine. It's a long evolved <laughs> thing. But the more interesting thing in that story for me was that most cis men, start losing the upper range of their hearing starting at age 25. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a gradual slope. You know, guys in their 30s don't need a hearing aid necessarily if they're normally hearing people, right? 
But you do have this slope of decline that's just, it's like a band filter. It's just cutting off the top end of your range every year a little bit more down, down, down until you arrive in your 50s. And the thing is, is that female voices, female typical cis women's voices are a little bit higher pitched. And our overtones on our voices are also the full timbre of our voice. It really extends up to the top end of human hearing. So what happens is quite literally starting age 25, cis men aren't hearing women's voices very well. And the older they get, the worse it gets until finally in their 50s or so, quite without realizing it, a lot of men, a lot of cis men, our voices, our female voices sound thin, a little bit tinny, um, harder to pick out. And it may well be boosted by a hearing aid, right? So that totally changes some of how I understand the dynamic of a boardroom. Now, it doesn't explain why a sexist man cares about what a woman says less. Doesn't say that. That's just sexism. Right. But it does say that literally he might be having trouble hearing you without realizing he is. And and again, the, as you discuss all of these interesting things throughout the chapter of perception, and and I think I don't remember if we mentioned Pergi is the name of this Eve, sixty uh, some odd million years ago. Purgatorius, yes, yes, mm-hmm. ancestor of the primates. So if people want to learn even more about these kind of things about our nose, our eyes, our ears, uh, Pergi's chapter is the place to go. We're talking with Kat Bohannon about her book Eve: How the Female Body Drove Two Hundred Million Years of Human Evolution. You can also check out some of Kat's essays and poems. They've appeared in Scientific American, Mind, Science Magazine, The Best American Non-Required Reading, and other places. And she lives with her family in Seattle, but is currently touring to talk about this new book called Eve. Let's talk about the legs. So we talked a little bit about being up in the trees, right? Yeah. But at some point we came down. This is about four and a half-ish million years ago. We (laughs) decided to stand upright, and that had some big implications for differently sexed bodies. Let's talk about some of those. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know that we decided to do much of anything, uh, (laughs) at least in the sense (laughs) of conscious choice. We didn't choose, I mean, to modify our pelvic arrangement, (laughs) although some individual choices all, you know, happen along the way. So, yeah. So one of the big things in a shift for the human evolution pattern is that we mistakenly believed for a while that our ancestors were knuckle walkers, you know, like chimps or gorillas. And then we stood upright. You remember that old, you know, diorama, that old, uh, you know, you got the knuckle walking and then you eventually stand up and then there's jokes about it. Eventually you're like sitting typing on the computer at the far right. Yeah, hunched over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so that kind of meme kind of has been around. But actually we were never knuckle walkers. None of our ancestors Mm. were, none of our Eve, certainly. We were just uh, hanging out in trees and then on the ground a bit more and eventually walking. So the thing about walking is that what you really need to be able to do, besides just having a spine absorb more pressure uh, than it would otherwise, Mm. that's why we have an S-shaped kind of lower back to Mm. help distribute that force over our bodies without crippling us. But also what we needed to be able to do was endure. In other words, the story of walking and bipedalism is an endurance story. So a primatologist once told me that, that there is no safe place to be in a room with a chimpanzee. There's no possibility Mm. that you are in a safe space because they are incredibly fast, incredibly strong, and can be incredibly violent. They will rip Mm. off your face sometimes, literally, hopefully not, and they'll do it really, really fast. So the idea that we got faster when we became upright is is actually wrong. Hmm. What did happen, however, is that if if a chimp does attack you, not long after all of that incredible violence and and speed and running away more than likely, because that's mostly going to happen if the chimp's scared, 
you know, they're going to want to go eat a mango under a tree somewhere. They're not going to they're not keeping it up for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. What we can do is we can walk all freaking day. Very few animals have the kind of metabolic capability of doing such a thing. Because it's not simply what your muscles can do, it's how your muscles are utilizing what's called the substrate, utilizing local energy resources, and when those run out, tapping into other resources, usually in our case from fat. So that's why we're able to walk from point A to B for hours and hours, whereas a chimpanzee can't, can't do that shit, right? So the interesting thing about sex differences here is that we know that female bodies in human bodies are slightly better at endurance by many different mm -hmm. measures. So untrained bodies, bodies that haven't been trying to do this, in other words, haven't been working out in the gym, your classic female body does have slightly less muscle mass, but that isn't the big story. The bigger story is that when you do a deep tissue biopsy, female typical skeletal muscles have a little bit more of what's called slow twitch muscle. You might have heard hmm. that's, that's an endurance muscle. That's a type of tissue that's better at doing things for a long period of time mm -hmm. as opposed to fast twitches, which is what lets you be a sprinter, which is what lets you mm -hmm. really have explosive strength. There does seem to be that sex difference, I mean, between male bodies, typical average, I mean, and female bodies, just in terms of what those muscles seem to be geared for. And it's tricky, right? Most of us aren't ultramarathoners for many reasons, most of them psychological, <laughs> uh, some of them financial, actually, right? But like most of us aren't going to do those extreme tests of endurance. But right. once you get up to those extreme lengths, actually, uh, female runners tend to not only match or beat male runners in those races, but actually tend to outpace them over time, which is to say there may be something about the female body that in long feats of endurance is slightly better at this, very slightly better at tapping into a second wind. And so if that's the case, then it's curious that usually how we tell the story about becoming upright is all about some, some shit that we assume guys were doing. Usually it's around hunting. The idea that we were running down big game, you probably read some popular science books about that, that we evolved to run. Right. And sort of, maybe, but it's a little bit weird, one, to assume that the males were the ones doing that. Two, we were upright way before we were hunting big game. Like, mm -hmm. Artipithecus is the Eve I use in the legs chapter. Yes, Artie. And, you know, this is a very, very Artie. She's wonderful. Um, recently discovered. Wonderful, wonderful fossil. She was upright well before big game was a big part of our food strategies. Mm -hmm. So like we were actually doing stuff on two legs way before it was a matter of running anything down. And this is where it's tricky for researchers to pin down is we're dealing with these huge lengths of time and we're mm -hmm. dealing with a pretty limited record. And so we, yeah. we, we see you piecing the story together in ways that challenge the conventional narrative. And you've got the evidence there, just as much evidence and sometimes more than what the typical narrative tells us, which is like you said, uh, we started walking upright because males were hunting and running after game or whatever. And you're like, well, actually, there's all this other evidence that shows there's probably other stuff going on. And looking at today's bodies gives us some ideas about the bodies of the past as well. So you mentioned the different sort of muscle things that, that female bodies tend to have. Now, would that definitely be something that developed then through evolution rather than through like boys getting played with more or something as in their youth than girls do or, or roughhousing with boys versus girls or something like that? You know, it's hard to say. I think that's a smart question. I think of the studies that I was using, that I was wielding, juggling even <laughs> in the legs <laughs> yeah. chapter, those were all done on adult bodies, uh, in part because yeah. there are ethics around doing a deep tissue biopsy 
in an infant. <laughs> right. uh, you know, like right. what is consent there? Why would a, you know, and also the occasion, why it might happen and what's the clinical setting? Like there are many ways into a scientific study, mm-hmm. but adult consent and informed consent is a big one. Right. So, yeah, I don't think those were pediatric studies. And I think it's smart. I think it's smart to say that when we do studies on adult bodies, there have been whole lived lives and whole lived childhoods mm-hmm. up to that point. That's absolutely true. And that plays into some of the issues we talk about later in the book, too. Um, So I don't know. I don't know. I do know that at least when there have been cellular studies of metabolism in human muscle cells, XX cells seem to be slightly better at utilizing multiple substrates, which is to say multiple energy sources. Tapping into Mm -hmm. that second wind when the local sugar runs out is usually how we tell that story, yeah than Mm -hmm. XY cells. So it does seem to be true at the cellular level and not just types of tissue. But you're absolutely right that I don't know how much childhood is going to play into that adult musculoskeletal system, at least not from the research I've seen. And you also say that going upright was harder on female bodies. Can you give me an example of, of why that would be? Yeah. So for one thing, relaxin. So relaxin is this thing that is floating around in the bloodstream of both male and female bodies, but it is slightly more dominant in female typical bodies. Again, I'm always here talking about biological females, usually pre-menopause here. Okay, just to put a pin in that so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, okay. Relaxin is a thing that during pregnancy loosens the ligaments and the support structures around not only the hip bones and the pelvic structure to help it widen and carry that additional load, Uh, But of course, also to widen our very narrow birth canal, which is a problem. But it's also, even when we're not pregnant, it tends to make the fixtures of the joints a little looser. It actually has to do with a vascular response around the joints, so I won't get too technical with you. But basically what what it does is it, it makes a typical female body a bit more flexible. You know, now this is part of why our feet expand when we are pregnant. It's not simply fluid retention. But for female bodies that become pregnant, it's also that these higher doses of relaxin are loosening the ligaments Mm. that are binding all of those foot bones together. So they literally get wider and sometimes a little bit longer, which is very freaky when you think about it and uh, doesn't always quite go back. I can tell you afterwards, many (laughs) women gain as much as a whole shoe size during pregnancy and then just retain that, which sucks for buying new shoes. But there you go. Uh, You have greater concerns when you're in your postpartum period, I could say. Um, Yeah, but it also means that like we're especially prone to lower back pain, Mm. possibly because of some instability there in the lower back, especially going through pregnancy and back again. That can make you more vulnerable, too, because it does a lot to the curvature of the spine. Right. So Mm. in other words, being upright with this extra relaxin in your bloodstream can make you a little more vulnerable to certain kinds of bone and muscle related pains than it would be than if you were a totally sensible four-legged creature who isn't doing this crazy thing. Because basically we used to be like tables (laughs) with four legs and now we're standing on two of the legs of the table and our body is still kind of catching up. Yeah. And you're bearing that extra weight of a pregnancy too on that back. And so the the common lower back pain uh, is, is a remnant of this decision that, or not decision as you pointed out, but this 
evolutionary uh, move Accident. of going upright yeah. instead of exactly right. That's not the mm-hmm. only change that women undergo during pregnancy. These physical changes you talked about, um, the mm-hmm. joints, the feet, but also mm-hmm. the brain. The brain undergoes changes similar to what happens to the brain during puberty. You describe it almost like a second sort of puberty. Uh, there's so yeah. much development and change happening in the actual brain that it's like yeah. a second puberty for women who become pregnant. It's like an extra transition in a life cycle. Yeah, yeah. So in right, biology, right. you have these classic, maybe you've seen developmental trajectories in the life cycle. It usually looks like a circle with arrows around it. And you see like, you know, an egg and then a juvenile, like an insect. You'll have like a larva and then you have a chrysalis and then you have a butterfly. For mammals, we yeah. do this too. And we say, what are the developmental phases? What are the phases of this life cycle? And one of the interesting things, at least when it comes to how the human brain seems to go through this life cycle because there are changes in our incredibly plastic, very malleable human brain that shift and actually have very notable physiological changes at each of these major transitions. So in puberty, there's actually an incredible rewiring and developmental thing that happens all throughout the teens. can be very challenging, can make you more vulnerable to certain kinds of mental illness, actually, and then not suffer as much when you come into your 20s. There are outcomes, in other words, from what's going down in there. Like schizophrenia will often emerge around that time, for example, and and a little bit later for women than men, right? Yes, absolutely so. And one of the cutting edge things in research there is whether or not the brain development during puberty is in any way affecting that trajectory. Both men and women, (laughs) um, and by this I mean males and females, Mm -hmm. are prone to schizophrenia, right? Schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. it's a strongly genetically related thing, but we're not entirely sure what all the triggers are. What we do know is that males and females both get it, but what happens is that males are diagnosed sooner, and very obviously so, they move into psychosis, right? Whereas females have a slightly different symptomology, slightly different path towards diagnosis, uh, and are diagnosed later in their 20s. Now, some of that's a diagnosis bias in that, you know... Sure. How signs are read by society or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Which is a cultural thing and sometimes a sexist thing. There are just there are complications there. There are confounds. However, it may also be the case that because the pubertal shift is sort of long and slow in humans, we actually start many of the features of our puberty sooner and then take Mm -hmm. longer to complete them in female bodies. Mm -hmm. Whereas for males, it hits you later and it hits you like a truck. It just hits you like a ton of bricks. It's just, um, it, 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 that's just, it's just faster and a bit harder, if you will, because you're condensing that into a later point. And interestingly, even in rodents, actually, what you might call a puberty isn't exactly the same as what we do. Um, they likewise, in the female, have a sort of longer period of going through it than the male. So it might just be a basic mammalian thing. But the effect in the human brain is that you have this longer and slightly subtle isn't the right word, but you have this longer period of brain development that's dealing with the hormones of puberty that has a slightly mm-hmm. different slope while that brain's developing. Whereas in the male brain, you know, it, it's it's shorter, it's more impact, it might be a bit rougher, you know. So in mm-hmm. a brain that's already prone to psychosis, this is where the research, mm-hmm. some branches of research are going, you know, is that a factor? Are there mm-hmm. physiological shifts in, you know, sex differences in puberty that make those brains differently vulnerable to different kinds of mental illness. And so female brains are undergoing these changes yeah. during puberty, but then later during pregnancy, as we were talking about, there's also more shifts. And this is literally like stuff sort of moving around. Is this like neurons 
kind of remapping and different things. Like, what's actually happening up there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell is this wet lump of tissue in our heads that we center the self in? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Good question. Neuroscience <laughs> would like to know. No, it's true. Well, a pregnant female's brain, and by this I mean human now, actually shrinks in the third trimester. Mm. Like, significantly wow. so, which is alarming. Like, is the baby actually eating my brain? Good question. Uh, no one's really sure <laughs> quite brain. why this is happening. I know. Actual mo- mom brain, it turns out, is hella yeah. real. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and in, in the stereotypical sense. So, yeah, some of it actually, interestingly, doesn't seem to be a loss of neurons. It's not a loss of cells necessarily from what little they've been able to see in various mm-hmm. studies. It seems to be more a loss of there is a rewiring. There is a kind of clear, you know, snipping out a bunch of connections in mm-hmm. your existing neural network, which in some ways may make room for new pathways. So one of the big arguments for why our brains develop so long during that pubertal period, which is very unlike other primates, right? We really right. have this huge period of social learning in our childhoods and then our adolescence, is that we have deep social learning to do. We have really complex mm-hmm. social societies, and we're constantly having to map them and learn not just new things to do with ourselves, but new ways to be in different social environments, mm-hmm. especially as we shift around through different social environments. So in that case, when you think about what's happening in the last trimester of pregnancy and then in the postpartum recovery period, this is someone who is having a major social shift. Now, the story in the sciences is usually told that, oh, this is helping her better bond with her baby, her really, Mm -hmm. really vulnerable baby who's so very useless, can't even hold up its head. You know, so like, wow, (laughs) so this is all about that bonding. And it's true that some of the regions that show some of that um, shrinkage if you will, which sounds like a bad thing, but is actually allowing for more pathways to form. That's the argument that's usually made about it. Um, Have to do with social bonding and reading social cues. And so it's a sociality story. One of the things that I say in the book is that must we again render the mother invisible? Maybe it's not all about the baby. Maybe she matters too. Yeah. Because actually one of the big things that happens in a social species like ours when we give birth and come into motherhood, especially for the first time, is that we are learning new ways to be. We're learning how Mm -hmm. to differently map our social environment and new relationships with different sorts of people. And who's going to be most helpful in this new feature in my life? And who Mm -hmm. of my old friends are like, maybe not going to help out with the kids so much. Just, you know, we love them, but mm, that's not their strength. You know, in other words, and how to ask for things that you need and when to learn new social rules. Which is to say, I suspect some of the brain changes that are happening there are not simply about bonding with the baby, but are about being able to read the room once you have one. Which I assume is a long-evolved trait that is just repurposed in the human. This is probably happening in chimps to a degree. It's more like, okay, now that you're human, let's repurpose this trait in your hypersocial environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And time and time again, we see this happening where you'll take kind of the mainstream story about why a particular biological thing is happening. So mom brain, for example, which is like maybe people might encounter just like forgetfulness or feeling scattered or like ADHD type symptoms or whatever. um, And saying, oh, this is happening because they're doing this for baby. And you're saying, okay, like, sure. uh, But also, what if it's also this? Um, Because those type of questions are what are driving scientific outcomes and, and, and the theories that we have about it. So your book again and again is saying, well, what about this as well? Or what about this instead? So we're, we're just sort of 
getting a different sort of view. And I think with a lot of these questions, it's hard to just say this is the the definitive answer. Yeah. And you do write with a level of humility there, but you're really opening up possibilities that can change the way we the way we interact with people who aren't parents or people who are, because you're also not saying, look, you're in order to be a perfect woman. You'll you need to go through this change in your brain oh, or else you're no. an unfulfilled no, woman. No, 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 right. So you're speaking to a lot of different experiences. You know, I think this is true for all women. We people who have uteri are not merely vessels for babies. Our entire right. that's an, even in an evolutionary sense, because we are a hypersocial species and interdependent, complex social environments and cultures, which is to say it is not a woman's destiny to freaking give birth. It is a woman's Mm. destiny to survive as best as she can, just like any other organism. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's also true that there are many, many ways to contribute to the well-being of a group, even in a biological sense, even in an ancient Mm. ancestral sense, besides simply producing more babies. Mm. And that's sometimes the confusion when we talk about the book. Some people have been confused thinking, are you saying that women are the way they are, you know, cis women, uh, because... It's our destiny to have babies. And I'm like, no, no, it's more that the way we have babies is really crap. And so many features in <laughs> yeah. our bodies have evolved to withstand it. Yeah. If this is a thing that hopefully you choose to do and isn't forced upon you, hopefully you have some long evolved traits to make it suck less. It's more like that. Mm-hmm. More like that. And so women who don't undergo that or have the same kind of like brain changes, it doesn't mean that their brains are somehow lesser than or whatever. They're just suited for different things. Exactly. And this is also where trans identities come into play as well, is that if you don't they... have to be this biologically sexed as as a female to not even mention intersex folks as well, where there's yep. not this sort of binary that exists there, but that trans yep. women can experience the world as women, as trans women especially, even though they may not be able to carry a baby or to have this, you know, because I think one of the reasons people who are sort of anti-trans voices are really mm. hung up on this, being able to biologically sexually reproduce as the mm-hmm, pinnacle mm-hmm. of what it means to be a female. And because mm-hmm. trans women can't necessarily do that, therefore they're not. Uh, and your book speaks to this. So maybe take a minute here to talk a little bit about trans identities. You've been signaling it all the way, but this is a moment to really sort of unpack it for folks. Sure. So I'm queer. I'm not genderqueer, have friends who are. That doesn't mean I got a hall pass for it, but I do. Um, (laughs) And of course, people who are genderqueer will speak most authentically to what it's like to be them. Because of course, we are each the best authority on what it's been like to live in these crazy mammalian bodies. Like actually, when somebody tells you something about the intimate experience of what it's been like to live in their bodies, it's not just good to listen because it's polite. It's good to listen because you now have an opportunity to listen to the world's authority on a topic because literally no one else knows better about that than that person. So I do my best as best as I can in the book. I'm not a perfect agent, but I do the best I can to signal where the studies that I'm drawing from, juggling, wielding, you know, moving around on the page when they are done on cis bodies, which is the vast majority of the time, mm-hmm. and when there actually have been some beautiful papers on people who identify as trans or as genderqueer of other types. Unfortunately, a lot of that good work has to be done in footnotes to say this would have been a great moment for that data to exist. Shame it doesn't. Right. You know? Right. But there have been moments where I could then, and I use it not simply to wave a flag, although we all want to be part of the good work, right? 
um, but because it then helps discuss something I'm wanting to say in the book. For example, I met a lactation consultant for uh, trans mothers, trans women in Seattle because Seattle's awesome and has such people and and they're not having to be in hiding. And she sent me this was a she was a cis woman, the consultant, but she sent me down this incredible research rabbit hole because she's the first person who told me that trans women who want to have the experience of providing breast milk for their babies who have come into their lives either through adoption as newborns or or through IVF take the exact same hormone protocol as cis women who adopt and likewise want to mm. be able to breastfeed their child. It's mm-hmm. called the, I think it's called the Newman-Goldfarb protocol. I don't know. You can look that up in the book. But yeah. <laughs> and it's basically a sequence of hormones that effectively mimics the, the hormone cascade of estrogens, et cetera, that happens in the body and then mimics what happens during birth hormonally. And, and they do. They do, in fact, then lactate. Right. And the reason to discuss that isn't simply to honor their experiences, but to point out that it's weird to call the male nipple vestigial because we, what we right. really are. Is In other mammals. words, it's useless. It's a throwback to it doesn't yeah. have a purpose. Yeah. yeah. There's no reason for it to be there. But it, and it's like, oh, no, no, no. What we really are is freaking mammals and what mammals are in some of the most ancient sense are creatures that lactate. And given the right hormonal protocol. You know, the right hormonal signal is just like the freaking Paul Revere ringing the bell, riding down, and your abdo- <laughs> your chest wall is saying, oh, God, baby incoming, better start making milk. Um, so even if you have a Y chromosome, if your tissue is duly exposed in the right sequence, you will lactate. And importantly, the milk is the same stuff. This is not like special trans milk. It's just milk. It's just human milk with right. basically the same profile of proteins and lipids and water and, and the microbiomes involved. It's the same freaking stuff. It's not quite the same. They don't seem to, on this protocol, produce colostrum. Um, or is it colostrum? I that's never like know how to pronounce early it. On. I've had to yeah, do it. Yeah, I don't either. Early milk. But it's that I special know. early on milk that's podcast. all like packed I'm like, with which? stuff. Yeah. And this is the problem with doing interdisciplinary work where you read a lot of stuff and then you have to talk about it. Anyway, but yeah, so the yellow early <laughs> milk that happens yeah. after a person is given birth. So that that hormone protocol in trans parents who have a Y chromosome and who who want to lactate. They don't make that the yellow stuff, but but the white the mature milk, yes, they're making the exact same stuff. So that's one of the things I try and do in the book because I think Masha Gessen has written really really beautifully about their experience of uh being a person from Russia who as a teenager didn't have access to all of these ideas about a trans identity or intersex or the access to the language to describe that experience that they had growing up. But one of the things that Masha's written about is how beautiful it's been to have conversation about the trans experience and intersex experiences be normal. That it's not always about waving a flag, that it's simply a part of the conversation. And when it's appropriate to say, you say it. And then when it's not a thing, you don't have to always ring the bell. That it's just it's not like we have to have the whole conversation be about it now. It's just a normal, natural part of the conversation of human experience. Yeah. I hope I'm representing their work there. Uh, they are far more beautifully intelligent about these topics than I am. But that was one of my guiding lights when I was working on the book. I was like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that there is a dearth of research on trans reality, but it's getting better. And here's where it's cool. And here's when it directly ties into the topic. You know what I mean? 
I do. Yeah. And people that read the book will know too. You're signaling throughout it in, in really helpful ways. Also, I think calls for research and for more questions to be asked, which is also useful too. Absolutely. For lack of time, we'll skip through. There's a great chapter on voice um, where you're talking about yes, differences yes, yes. in voice and lung capacity and all sorts of things. So the people want to check out the book. Again, it's called Eve. They can learn more about how voices and uh, are different, like why our voices often sound different. Uh Pitch-wise and how far they carry and all of that stuff. So people to check out the book can hear that. But let's go through to connect with something you said just uh, just a moment ago here about women not just being here just to make babies. Oh, yeah. Animals reproduce. And when they can't anymore, they basically die, right? Uh, humans and orca whales are the exceptions here you point out in the book. And human females go through menopause. So their periods stop. They stop being fertile. And they can live decades beyond that, whereas other animals, they stop being able to give birth. And it's basically it. They just die. And you talk about some of the theories about why that is. There's the grandma theory, which you don't find very convincing. So give us an idea of what the grandma theory is and why you don't find it convincing. So I think there are I think it's like four species of toothed whale that have menopause the way we do. I talk mostly about transient orca because from what I saw in the research, they were the best studied. Um, it's really, really hard to study things that live in oceans in their natural yeah. setting. Especially when they crash into your boats when you're like going alongside them. So many problems with cetacean research. I know they're wonderful. And all the people who do cetacean research are just kind of like wild buccaneers. <laughs> they're just like really cool people to hang out with. Anyway, so when it comes to <laughs> menopausal orca, uh, when I say that they have menopause the way we do, I mean, it's important to kind of define your terms. What what that means is you're living a full third of your average lifespan after having ceased having babies. And in mammals, that means your ovaries have shut down. It's not like you've stopped having sex, but your ovaries are no longer doing the thing such that the sexing can produce the babies. So it's an unusual thing. It's kind of a deep mystery in biology. In principle, you know, if reproductive fitness is the big evolutionary fitness of your species, right, then why on earth would you uh, give out a full third? So there have been a lot of just-so stories, there, and some are better than others, around why we evolved to stop having babies. One of the most popular of them is called the grandmother hypothesis. And the theory there, it, there are a few different angles on it, but the main theory is that it comes about because uh, instead of competing with her daughters for resources and uh, sexual partners, uh, it, we're talking primates now, we're not talking right now, right? But, you know... Um, <laughs> that uh, a female might stop having her own babies and help take care of the grandkids. And that therefore the very vulnerable, obviously sort of, again, I love my kids, but kind of worthless offspring that we make that takes so much extra care to keep alive, you know, they are, they have a grandma on hand. And isn't that so useful? And she's not busy taking care of her own kids so she can help with yours. You know, and also let me just say that's not for the moral like impact of it of like it's a nice thing for them to do, but actually that makes them more fit because that means children Precisely. are probably going to be better taken care of, and so if like these w female chimps live longer, then those offspring are probably going to be able to et cetera, et cetera, because it makes them more fit. Not necessarily like it's nice for grandma to help out. Exactly, exactly right. Like we're talking now about the evolution along a hominin line, so things that are chimpy. Never, we didn't evolve from chimps, but from chimpy-like things, yeah all the way through up to humanity, uh, the kind of primate we are. The idea is that if you help the grandchildren survive better and give them competitive edges in their given environment, then that's something that gets selected for in a genetic line, right? Because those kids survive, have their own kids, and it keeps going on and on like this. The thing that I found a little bit 
dubious about that, at least when looking at what we know about the behavior of matriarchal uh, menopausal orca, because they are matriarchs, actually. It's a female-dominated society. The sons stay with their mothers their whole lives and actually tend to die a bit sooner if the mom dies, actually. Uh, So it's really their mama's boys, those killer whales. But the thing (laughs) is, is that the grandmother figure, these older matriarchs in the pod, they're not really helping out with the grandkids more. They're not like, like they help the whole pod. It's not like they're they're jerks. They're, you know, it's it's a social species, but like they're not on childcare duty. That's not what's up. What mm-hmm. they're especially known for is for when the pod is in crisis or there has been a depletion of a local food source, they help lead the pod to other rarer food sources where there's good food. Or they're instrumental in helping teach the younger members of their pod how to do special hunting techniques, like all of the killer whales lining up in a row and kind of bum-rushing an ice flow such that the bow wake knocks a seal (laughs) off of the flow, which is terrible for the seal, but very nice for the orca, right? (laughs) Um, And very cool when you see the videos of it happening. But again, we're sad for the seal. It's how they live. With apologies to all of our seal listeners, yes. Exactly, exactly. You know what it is? Nature doesn't care how we feel about it, right? So this is how it is. So in other words, that model of the menopausal orca, at least, doesn't seem to be about extra childcare. It seems to be about having wisdom, effectively. Now, that's a very human idea, wisdom, but just literally knowing stuff that younger members might not know because they literally haven't lived long enough to encounter that challenge and remember how you got around that challenge, right? So in a deeply social species like ours, maybe instead what ends up happening is that the whole species, all of humanity, evolves to extend our lifespan. Remember, we're dying off much like chimps for a very long time until like age 35, 40 or so. At some point, we actually extend our lifespan. And this is happening in deep stuff in how our cells are are going about their business. It's not like we decided to live longer. It's like our bodies just found workarounds around death. Longevity is about not dying. So both males and females evolve to live longer in the whole species. It just so happens that the female body is slightly better at it And it might be Mm -hmm. that our ovaries are still running an older plan. Like if the ovaries didn't Mm -hmm. get the message that now we're living, you know, up into our 80s and they're still senescing in that normal primate way. Senescing means aging. It's the slope of aging. Mm -hmm. How quickly is stuff falling apart down there? So if our ovaries are still aging in a normal primate pattern, well, then menopause is a side effect of just all of us selecting to live longer in complex social Mm -hmm. groups where the wisdom of elderly people is beneficial. Yeah, so women will often, on average, live longer than men, for example. And you're saying this could be yes. like an accidental thing of history, Absolutely. Uh, you know, of, of deep evolution, where it just so happens that, yeah, we actually were sort of, as a species, we would have been primed to die around the time that menopause happens, but that yep. evolution found these other workarounds to extend our life, but the ovaries still kind of didn't get that memo. And so they're like, no, this is like... We, we put in our time. Goodbye. Yeah. And people who have ovaries are dealing with the fallout in the last third of our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that it didn't then as a kind of add on perk, a door prize, if you like, become mm. beneficial to help out right. with the grandkids and not compete with your daughters for resources sure. for your own kids. Right. It's not like that. It's more like when we tell ourselves the story of how a thing evolves, it's useful to say, OK, Is it actually tying into these very cultural stories we tell about women or is there a broader picture here? And weirdly, I think we were just kind of forgetting that old people are valuable just in general. (laughs) Like there might that there is something valuable in a social group, in other words, in being old enough to remember valuable information in times of crisis. 
That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like how to survive in a cold snap or a famine or a drought. Like maybe folks that were able to do Absolutely. that can pass that information along. So this ties into the development of the brain where you talk about language happening. And, <laughs> and that that's <laughs> also a big part. Um, we we kind of skipped through this, but in the voice chapter, you talk about motherese, the kind of like, oh, little yep. coochie coochie, like the little things that, that are pretty universal in how we communicate with each other. And the kind of storytelling that was developed probably as, as women were nursing babies uh, and, <laughs> and all of these things then. So- so many of your chapters kind of intersect with each other in in just a, a really wonderful way. And it all takes us to the final section of the book, which is about love. Uh, your last chapter yeah. tackles the history of relationships. And the human body itself is your scene of the crime, so to speak. You're going to find out yes. this pressing question about like, were our ancestors, deep ancestors, polygamous, monogamous, patriarchal? Mm-hmm. Like, How did it yep. look? And you say by actually looking at at our genitals, we can get a pretty good idea of sexual dominance compared to other creatures. Talk about what the human body itself can tell us about whether our ancient ancestors lived in this world where cavemen were like dragging women into their caves <laughs> for how it was actually working. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm, I assume some of our ancestors utilized caves, especially in cold places, because caves have this really nice benefit of always being at a fairly okay but slightly chilly temperature. It's just a thing yeah. that happens when you go underground. So that's why caves are useful. It's not just about shielding from the rain. It's like, is it really freaking cold outside? It's less cold in the cave. Mm. But there are many cases in which uh, we were living in the world without caves. Yeah. Anyway, that's a side note. So, yeah. So in many ways, uh, the love chapter is a thing I kind of, at first I kind of had to do because I kept getting this question. So was it like King Solomon? Is it like, you know, is it natural for men to cheat on women? Is it natural? I get the natural question a lot. Natural. Which is kind of weird because I'm like, you're asking me very contemporary, (laughs) social, cultural questions. And then you're using the natural word. And I'm like, that feels loaded. Not sure exactly how to answer you, but I can tell you in biology. But what other animals do isn't necessarily what we want to do. So... Like penguins. None of us should be like penguins. They're just terrible to each other. And I'm sorry yeah, for ruining penguins for you. This was so like, sad. You know? Yes. Yeah. I know. I know they're so cute. They're so cute. But their sex lives. I, I don't want any part of that ever again, having seen some ducks of those too. Re- reports. Ducks. I know. I've ruined ducks, too. I promise the book doesn't ruin everything for everyone. But it's true. It's true. There's the Which is to say the behavior of other animals isn't a good excuse for bad behavior in humans. How yeah. about that? But I still get I still get the question, you know, is it natural for one male and a bunch of females? Is that mm-hmm. our ancestral past? Is it monogamy in our ancestral mm-hmm. past? Or is it more like the chimps and bonobos where everyone's just kind of getting laid all the time? It's just kind of mm-hmm. like a daily orgy, but, you know, add some fruit and a lot of fighting. Like, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is our mating pattern ancestrally? And the thing is, is that we're always tempted to look at contemporary cultures mm-hmm. and just like, kind of weigh how many versions that these contemporary cultures have and say, well, this one seems to be winning, so that must be the way it always was. In other words, we want to retrofit our evolution to what we think is normal. And that's just bad science. You know, that's just not, that's not, remember, our species is 300,000 freaking years old, Hmm. possibly even older. It depends who you ask, right? So like recorded history is a handful of thousands of years. That's not a good sample size. Hmm. What we do have, as you say, is the body, because history is quite literally, in the evolutionary sense, written on the body. So you can look to the body and compare to what we see in other species to ask questions about our mating patterns. So, for example, 
species that have a lot of male-male competition, um, at least especially among primates, um, have gigantic testicles. Mm. So they have when you need to literally compete with your sperm, you need to make more sperm, and mm-hmm. therefore you have giant balls. Okay, so a chimpanzee has a pretty small penis, like not not a lot going on there, kind of cone shaped, not not a giant thing. The balls are massive. Just for an animal that size, you would not expect that much to be swinging down there, and they are. Meanwhile, the gorilla, big-bodied male, right, has a harem, has a bunch of females around him. Not as much male-male competition, of course, because he mostly beats his chest to chase off the guys. Mm-hmm. Tiny little balls, like peanuts, mm. just little, like nothing, nothing really to see there, down there. So in other words, one of the places, weirdly, I know it's a book about the female body, but one of the places to look for our mating strategies is what's going on in the testicles, right? Yeah. And what human beings have are kind of, for an animal our size, kind of medium balls, kind of Goldilocks, kind of like not too big, not too small, something, something kind of in the middle, right? So reduced male competition, in other words, but also mm. not a harem, not King Solomon and his wives, because you would then expect, or at least Smaller, if yeah. in the time in which we had those mating strategies, the time it takes for testicles to evolve differently. There's assumptions mm-hmm. there, right? Because we don't know sure. how fast that kind of stuff can change. But at least it's it's a clue. It's a clue. You have to kind of think of these as all clues from which we infer. It's also true that we do not have a lot of bells and whistles in the human phallus. The human penis is kind of boring. I mean, compared to other species. You know, it's just kind of a very simple structure. Yeah, like it doesn't have a bone inside of it, for example, right? Like some. It doesn't have a baculum, although that mostly seems like a sad thing for you guys, given that it's more vulnerable than to have injuries Break without the baculum. Sorry about that. Yeah. Ugh. But it, it is true, for example, that you don't have elaborate penile spines or curly Q structures or any kinds of other things that are often seen in species that evolve with a lot of rape. Because remember that the penis co-evolves with the vagina, which means that in every species that has them, I mean. It's war down there. It is. It's a very sexy cold war down there. Yeah. So, you know, the female vagina is evolving in ways uh, over deep time that support female reproductive choice effectively, given the history of the species. That's the general model. And likewise, the male is uh, evolving to support male reproductive choice, and they are often in conflict. Right. So ducks have very elaborate vaginas and very elaborate penises. Yeah, there's like folds and stuff in the vagina, right? Where they can. This reminds me of that congressman or whatever that had that ridiculous claim of like, well, if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has a way to shut that thing down, which is like, actually, no. But there are so many problems with that sentence. (laughs) Also, grammatically, just so many problems (laughs) with the word legitimate is obviously the biggest problem. Um, yes. Like that's obviously a good a good starter point of like um what now but also <laughs> yeah. just the simple lack of information about biology I mean God take bio one hundred and one please yes. what are you even saying yes because like ducks you say have these labyrinthine vaginas and the and the penis has evolved to sort of like try to get around up in there it's more like a tentacle yeah. type well, in of other words thing? what she has is kind of a trapdoor vagina it's an elaborate yeah. curvature structure. But when she is, she's experienced sexual coercion, when she's having sex when she doesn't want to with some guy yeah. who's forcing that on her, she uh, can close off pockets of her vagina to trap the unwanted semen and sperm. And then when the assaulter thankfully goes away, she's able to expel that semen and it never mm-hmm. makes it to the egg. Mm-hmm. Right. So and you can see this statistically in the studies that have been done that um, rape is actually not a highly successful mating strategy for the male. 
It's mm. just successful enough that they keep doing it, but not so much so that her body hasn't long evolved ways mm-hmm. of helping support her choice. Yeah, her reproductive we choice. Don't which in biology see a similar is a big thing. labyrinthine. We don't thing have with that humans. in human yeah. beings. We do yeah. not. The miscarriage rate for women who have been raped versus women who have had consensual sex is absolutely the same. It is not the case that rape is an advantageous strategy, and it is also not the case that unwanted sex has been such a thing in the evolution of our bodies that our bodies have evolved workarounds. If it had been, in other words, if historically we had been rapey, you know, I mean, in, the, in deep time, I mean, obviously mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. suffering right now is very, very real. But mm-hmm. is that the best model for how we used to go about things most of the time as our bodies evolved? No, probably not. You would expect more elaborate genitals. You would definitely expect a different miscarriage rate between consensual sex versus not. There are many, many different signals that tell me, at least, that the absolutely horrific thing that some people do to other people in the world with sexual violence is actually not the base state for how our bodies evolved. Right. So we can't say, oh, rape is a product of like evolution has evolved men to be able to do this. And I think that increases the responsibility. Right. I mean, I think how we tell the story of ourselves matters. And talking about our evolution inevitably is also telling the story of ourselves. You know what I mean? Now, there's always a tension between what we want to be true and what may well have been true, Mm -hmm. which we may not like. And I've tried to be very careful in the book in saying what research supports and what it doesn't. And sometimes it says stuff I don't like. It does. Mm -hmm. Penguins are ruined for me now. Many things, right? But in this case, I think it's incredibly important at least to say that no, or at least from what physiology can tell us, it's not the case that cis men and boys are born rapists. You know what I mean? That that actually is very, very much something that's coming out of our current social context that's coming out of rape culture, not from Mm. an innate predilection of our bodies. In addition to this chapter on love, you're talking about sexism in this chapter, that sexism itself Mm -hmm. maybe had some evolutionary advantages, and you believe that it's pretty much outlived those advantages. So maybe just give us a sense of what those some of those advantages might be and how sexism has outlived those advantages to where it's time we really try to address it more than we have so far. The way I'm talking about sexism in the book is slightly different from how we usually talk about it. And here I don't mean institutionalized sexism in who gets a job. And I'm not even meaning some guy being a jerk to some girl uh, in individual acts of aggression. What I am talking about when I talk about sexism in the book is the broadest sense, pulling the camera back and taking that broadest view of what's common across known human cultures. And one of the things that's very common are sex rules, which are fundamentally Mm -hmm. tied to controlling access to female bodies. Where can she go? What can she be seen in and who with? Uh, How much of her body is allowed to be touched and in what context? When is she allowed to be solo? Where does she go in a day? And certainly by the time you arrive at sex itself, who does she get to have sex with? In what context? And what about Mm -hmm. the baby making and all of that? So all of those I call sex rules. And every human culture seems to have them. Not all the rules are the same, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's the important thing. There's nothing in your DNA that codes for the length of a freaking skirt. But there may be something in how we go about being the human species in that we are culture makers and part of our deep culture making is making rules around sex. 
Why would that be from an evolutionary standpoint? Well, if it is true that we are crap at making babies, and I think I make a pretty good case in the book for that (laughs) being true, and one of our big solutions there in deep time was the invention of gynecology, broadly defined, you know, not simply the moment of helping one another give birth in midwifery, but all of the different things that we have done in deep time to manipulate a female fertility pattern. Those are all behavioral workarounds. Well, there are other behavioral workarounds. They're sex rules. So if sex rules in your local culture help produce a local fertility pattern that fits your environment really well and helps your culture survive and thrive, then that is something that gets reinforced and develops over time. So in deep time, you can think about ancient gynecology and sex rules working in parallel. Some of these are still pretty good, actually. Um, For example, I'm super down with the sex rule against pedophilia, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just super, super into that not being a thing we're cool with. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, if you think about it from a biological point of view, many, many cultures have this rule because it's absolutely the case that the cost of becoming pregnant and giving birth before you're done with puberty in a female body is just Mm -hmm. massive. Mm -hmm. You think it's hard to do this as an adult? Try a 12-year-old. Oh, my God, Mm -hmm. right? So in that sense, there are some rules that make obvious sense and some that make less sense. But if you can think about sexism as these sex rules and think about them in terms of manipulating female fertility patterns to suit local cultural environments and if basically directly having those hands on the levers of how we make babies and how we work around having more mothers and more babies survive the process, then you can see how it goes hand in hand. The trick is, is that at this point, Modern gynecology is amazing. Like, I would be so very deceased without modern gynecology, Mm. just personally, many times over. Not just Mm -hmm. the hemorrhaging, which is to say that if the goal, if the deep ancestral goal would be to help more mothers and offspring survive, right? Again, moving away from that idea of male dominance, because remember that men and women equally participate in creating Mm -hmm. and reinforcing these sex rules. So if we're equal players, males and females, well then, with an outcome of having more females survive, that certainly makes sense for the female. But now that modern gynecology is so very good, it has way outpaced the benefits of sex rules. Mm. In fact, in many cases, sexism is very detrimentally impacting Mm -hmm. the health of women and girls throughout the world. So we're only just now, I think, coming to that point where we get to get our heads above water and, and choose. And personally, I think the choice is obvious. Right. The book goes into detail about how sexism hurts health, wealth, and wisdom. In particular, those three things, it gives examples of those. So people that want to check out the book can learn even more about that. And Kat, before we go, I wanted to talk to you about regrets, challenges, and surprises. This is how we end each episode of Family Proclamations. As we go throughout the series, I'll ask each author to share something about their process of writing the book, something that they regret now that it's out. Who hasn't finished a book and thought, oh, if only I could have changed that one thing. So a regret or a challenge, what was the biggest, the hardest part about doing your project? Or a surprise, something you learned in the process of it that you've really carried with you. You can give an example of all three of those, or you can speak to one of them that just kind of has the best story. It's really up to you. One of the things that I wish I could have told myself uh, about five years ago when I was feeling really stressed about not being done yet because, of course, this book took about 10 years of my life to finish. Mm. I was running it in parallel with my PhD experiments and writing up the dissertation. So um, I was busy. I was a little bit split-brained. The PhD was only (laughs) semi-related to the book at best. 
Uh, it prepped me a little bit for the brain chapter and voice chapter, but pretty much just that. The rest, I was just climbing physiology mountain over with all of the rest of my time. And I was having children. <laughs> I do wish that I could have told myself five years ago that it is, it's okay. It's a big topic. Don't stress out. Sometimes the big questions take longer to work through. Yeah. Um, I certainly would have told myself that. One of the regrets I have in the book is that I do wish I could have found a way to wave the flag a little bit more for all of the amazing scientists whose work I completely rely on in mm. the, to tell the story of the book. What I ended up doing in the book is putting a lot of that in the notes. So the last right. third of those 600 some odd pages are the bibliography and the notes. Um, so I'm able to speak more directly to their work and wave the flag for them talking about how wonderful they are. But it is true that I wish I could have, I wish I could have done more of that or maybe, mm. or maybe done a podcast or something where I could really <laughs> shine the light on these amazing scientists, many of whom are women, many of whom are people of color, who are really a part of this big sea change in the biological sciences, mm. um, driving forward the question of sex differences in new and awesome ways, you know, uh, mostly because I want them to get grants. I want that for them. I, I, mm. I wish I could just rain money down on them, but I'm not rich <laughs> enough personally, but I wish I could. But also because, um, you know, science is a collaborative project. We often hear these stories about these standout scientists and they had their eureka moments, but actually all modern science is done by a lot of people in a lab and is deeply collaborative. And it's not a hero's story. It actually involves, it's a community story. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I wish I could have uh, done more there. And and maybe that's something I end up doing in another format later, uh, mm. just because since there were literally thousands of scientists whose work I rely on in this book, I would not then have been able to wield them as characters. Um, mm. But I would like in the future to be able to do more for that. Fair enough. You did tuck away a lot in the footnotes, but you also made the footnotes pretty funny. And so there's a lot of incentive, I think, you're sending people that way instead of being the kind of footnotes where you're like, I'm never going to check these. Um, <laughs> I found myself going to the footnotes because I knew they'd be great. I try to make it fun for you. People that have listened to this interview, I hope they get a sense for like your sense of humor and your voice because they come out so strongly in the book. I can't recommend this book enough. Really, Kat, this is such a fantastic book. Oh, thank you. It's got this humor. It's got pathos. Thank you so much. There's so much here. Yeah, you're welcome. I thank you for putting it together. It's called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Kat, congratulations. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. You're a powerful voice, and I love this book. Thank you so much. It was so nice to be on your podcast. Thanks for listening. We're just getting started here on Family Proclamations. I can't wait to share more with you. There's so much stuff. We'll talk about adoption, foster care, single adult life, what it's like to be an only child. We'll meet people who can't have kids. We'll talk about what it's like to not want any kids. We'll talk about queer families, feminism, masculinity, postpartum depression, immigration, family cults, gender identity, caregiving for older folks, and so much more. If you enjoyed this episode, you can do two quick things for me. First, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. And second, share it with a friend. The more, the merrier. Thanks to the great band Mates of State for providing our theme song. Family Proclamations is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. I'm Blair Hodges, and I'll see you next time.
All right, Fireside friends, you know what to do. Go search up Family Proclamations or go to familyproclamations.org and subscribe to the new show. I can't wait to see you over there. And thank you so much for listening.